the Wes Anderson, Bill Murray marriage was disastrous for both of them. Hello, Internet. You are listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. Um, I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, and as of this week, noted public faceplanter. That's right, I faceplanted in front of my children's entire school, uh, literally. I was there as a judge at a pep rally. I still really don't understand pep rallies. My school's never had them. I don't understand what they're for or what I'm supposed to get out of them. But they asked me to be a judge of school spirit, I guess, at the pep rally. And uh, most of that was just sitting behind a desk and looking important and uh, clapping for people. But at the end, they wanted me to come out and talk about what a hard deliberation process it was to choose the teacher with the most school spirit. Um, it was kind of weird. Um, but anyway, the desk was very close to the wall and I was surrounded by chairs. <laughs> there was a judge on either side of me. Uh, one of them got up and got out of my way, but then I had to climb over his chair and I was wearing rather large boots and the upshot is i fell forward landed on a speaker uh there was a screech of feedback and my face is broken um not really i was fine but i did get a round of applause for um for the face plant um took a bow you know doing doing the normal things that normal people who are not at all awkward do um, so that's been my week. How was yours? Um, this week, it's Oscar week, um, or at least it's Oscar nomination week. Um, this episode is going live to uh, supporters, to patrons on the 10th, which is two days after Oscar nominations were announced. And guess what? The new Wes Anderson movie, Licorice Pizza, is up for best picture. Surprise, surprise. I think uh, every time Wes Anderson sneezes, he gets a best picture nomination. Um, now, I personally am not crazy about Wes Anderson. I think he's fine. I think he's good at what he does. I'm just not that into what he does. Um, and I have a guest on this week who used to feel the same way I do. Um, this is a friend of mine named Asher Gelzer Gavados. And you may have not heard of him but you have definitely seen him if you've ever read like a clickbait meme aggregation article. He is a very prominent internet meme. Um, at least I see him all the time. Um, and I would not think twice about it if I didn't personally know him, but uh, I, I see him a lot in these articles. They're usually articles that are like, the headline will be like teachers behaving badly or something, and then there'll be a bunch of funny pictures from classrooms, um, and he just pops up in them all the time. Uh, he used to used to be a high school teacher. He's uh, currently a, a college level instructor, um, but back in the day when he was a high school teacher, he used to drink from a water bottle that he had 
marked with a sign that said students tears like there was a he just taped a piece of paper to the bottle that said students tears and apparently the internet finds this very funny because i cannot click on like a a meme aggregation article uh, uh with a headline about teachers that does not include his picture and the picture of his students tears water bottle um so that's right my guest is famous you've probably seen him a dozen times online um He's also a really smart guy, a really old friend, um, podcaster and writer as well. Um, I will let Asher introduce himself and tell you how he came to love the films of Wes Anderson. And I will see you on the other side. I'm sitting here with Asher Gelzer Gavados. Asher, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Luke. I'm glad to be here. And I'm sure I just butchered your name again, even though I've known you for like 15 <laughs> years now. Um, it's all good. That was pretty close, man. Pretty I'm, close. I try so hard. I try so hard. Asher is a lecturer at Doan University in Crete, Nebraska. Also the host of the podcast, Readers Karamazov. Uh, what am I leaving out? What am I forgetting? What else do you do? Uh, I mean, that's that's mostly it. I've, I've got a family that takes up a lot of my time, but um, you can occasionally find my writing on culture, films, books, things around the internet, but that's that's less and less frequently over the years. So yeah, mostly, I, mostly I'm teaching English uh, out here in Nebraska, and I do a podcast with a couple of my friends about philosophy and literature. So that, that's that's what I'm up to these days. Before we um, before we started recording, we were talking about how you have recently discovered the Runza. What is a Runza? Can you tell, <laughs> tell listen, I'm sure listeners are dying to know what is a Runza. This is like pure Nebraska sicko stuff here. But um, so Runza is a the local fast food chain here in Nebraska, and um, this area of Nebraska at least was settled heavily uh, in the, the 1800s uh, by people from. Uh, what is now the Czech Republic, uh, Bohemia, that sort of area. And so they brought with them this sandwich called the Runza sandwich. And it is just a delightful, like concrete block sinking right into your stomach. It's like, there's like beef and cabbage and spices. And then it's all wrapped up in this wonderful bread basket. It kind of looks like, I don't know, like one of those, um, you know, those things that you used to get as a kid that were like squishy and you could stick your finger inside of them and they would squish back and forth um, <laughs> like that. I'm, I'm trying to keep it PG here. <laughs> There's other things I can, I can compare it to, but it's a delightful like brick of deliciousness. And then they also have pretty good like onion rings and fry, you know, normal fast food stuff. But then this is like their centerpiece. And I love it because so much fast food is just like, okay, what random, you know, variation on a burger can we do now and this is like okay this is a piece of local culture that's made it to you know the semi big time at least here in nebraska so it's, it's pretty delightful i do enjoy it <laughs> i was trying to get my guests talking about something stupid to kick off the show just because <laughs> i don't know if listeners know i was raised mainly in nebraska so i i lived in lincoln nebraska for about 20 years of my life so we were we were uh, talking about that before the show a little bit i Used to know, um, used to know Asher when my wife worked uh, at 
Tulsa University. Um, so I, I knew, knew Asher back then because he was a student there. But I just now learned that Asher is in Nebraska these days. So, And I'm not too um, far from your old stomping grounds. Like Crete is about, what, 20, 25 minutes away from South Lincoln, at least. And so yeah, as, lovely as, as lovely as Crete is, and it really isn't a lovely small town, we end up going to Lincoln quite frequently for, you know, more exotic culture for the culture, (laughs) right? That sort of thing. Uh, Though not on game day. I've learned that lesson. You do not go to, Oh gosh. Yeah. Not unless you're there for the game. No, it's full of sad (laughs) people wandering around. So (laughs) blocking all the parking spots. Yeah. My gosh. uh, Yeah. You do not go to downtown Lincoln on game day. Um, Never. I'm, I'm sure you've heard the joke that um, on game day, Memorial stadium is the third biggest city in Nebraska. (laughs) <laughs> which is oh, it's it's literally yep. true it's more it's, people yep. crammed into a single building than into there than there are in the third third biggest city in the state which i think is carney i don't know um <laughs> it's wild. but yeah it's um yeah it's a definitely definitely a sleepy little town on every day except game day yeah you just you, you avoid unless you're unless you're there for the football you just kind of avoid downtown um <laughs> But uh, yeah, my folks still live in Lincoln, so we always drive out every once in a while. And then my wife insists we eat at Runza, although um, <laughs> she doesn't even like Runza. She just thinks they have good burgers. But um, yeah, yeah. you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> Asher, you said you wanted to come on the show and talk about the films of Wes Anderson, which I'm interested in this topic. I will say... I don't know if I'll ever forgive you for making me watch that much Wes Anderson to prepare for a podcast. <laughs> Sorry, man. I will. Okay. I, I don't, I don't actively hate the guy. I think he's made a few good movies. Like he's obviously a very gifted filmmaker and he's found a way to make a living at making exactly the kind of films he wants to make, which respect, but man, after a few of those, I'm just like, I get it, dude. You like bright colors and right angles. Like, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Loves a good dollhouse shot. Loves a good, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so I don't know what I'm going to contribute to this conversation, if anything. I just, um, I don't know. I'll start here, I guess. I was a film studies major in college. It was one of, one of uh, two majors of mine, and I... I just, I really had the sense uh, as a film studies guy that I was supposed to like arty cinema like Wes Anderson. And I really tried hard to like him. And I just, I don't know. I, I think he's just not for me. Like, <laughs> I just, I don't know. I, I, um, I definitely, um, I definitely had to get into my late 20s, I think, before I started to accept the fact that I wasn't you know, I was going, I was going to enjoy maybe some movies that were a little bit more commercial, a little less intelligent, and that's okay. Um, <laughs> and maybe it's, not yes. enjoy, not enjoy everything that uh, the, the awards and the critics told me I was supposed to enjoy. I don't know. Um, but why don't we, um, why don't we talk about, talk about Wes. Wes, uh, for listeners who don't know, I assume listeners who don't know who Wes Anderson is aren't even listening. Um, but <laughs> which makes them not listeners. But if you don't know, Wes Anderson is, um, I mean, he's a very critically acclaimed filmmaker. He makes, he's made a lot of very, let's say very twee art house comedies. Um, <laughs> the Royal Tenenbaums was one of his, his big ones. Uh, Rushmore, 
fantastic Mr. Fox, Isle of Dogs. That is what he's known for. Just kind of this very um, colorful, arty, awkward style of comedy. Um, mm-hmm. Frequently frequently starring surprisingly big Hollywood stars, um, a lot of whom you know, are in a lot of his movies. Bill Murray is one of his uh, recurring collaborators. Yep. So I guess, I guess he must be great to work with um, because he <laughs> keeps, keeps getting pretty, pretty top names to come back for his stuff. Um, but I don't know. You, you, you told me you um, started out kind of disliking the guy and now are kind of a huge Wes Anderson fanboy. Is that, yeah, that's Am reasonably I accurate. Like, no, I mean, and so I understand having been there with you for a very long time. I understand the um, idea of being kind of repulsed by his style. So, I, so I'm totally there with you. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm repulsed by it though, I just, or I, just just indifferent think, to it. Then I think I'm just kind of bored by it. Yeah, okay, like yeah, it's. I mean, like I can respect it for what it is for sure. Like it's um. You know, if you walk if you walk into a theater and they're showing a Wes Anderson movie, you're like, I know who made this movie, even <laughs> if you know nothing. Like, this is a Wes Anderson movie, um, and I definitely respect that. Like, I mean, so much of the stuff that Hollywood turns out tends to look very the same. You know, <laughs> that any anyone who really has a clear sense of style and really pursues it, like, I respect that. Yeah. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily do anything for me. You know, there's a, there's a really wonderful comment. This is more common about the, the sort of critical cliches that we fall into. But I saw a thing when his newest movie, The French Dispatch, which I have not seen yet, came out or, or was originally releasing. Somebody tracked the fact that every time a Wes Anderson film comes out, somebody says in their headline, Wes Anderson doubles down on his signature style. And so they calculated, they're like, Wes Anderson is now operating at like 128% of his signature or like 128 times his signature style or something like that. It's like a wonderful wonderful thing. But yeah, he he certainly has that. It's it's very distinctive in a lot of ways. And I think if you're, you know, if, if you're approaching it from a particular mindset, a lot of his films end up starting to feel the same. And so I get that. Uh, I, I totally understand that. I, I'm going to argue maybe over the course of this pod that that's not actually the case, but I can understand why somebody would approach it and just say like, okay, I can take this or leave it. I know what it is, right? You've yeah. seen one, you've seen them all sort of thing. Well, I think that, you know, to play devil's advocate, I, I do think that if you look at anything from a distance, like whether you're talking <laughs> about like a director's body of work or like a genre of film or music or whatever, like if you look at it from a significant enough distance, it will all look the same, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, a, a single director, you know, he has, uh, any given director is going to have go-to tricks and techniques that he knows work and he keeps coming mm-hmm. back to you. Like, that's just, I mean, that's be, that's what being human is, right? Yeah. Any, any genre, for that matter, is going to have, like, tricks and techniques that get repeated. That's what makes it a genre, you know? So saying it's all the same is not necessarily a valid criticism, like even, you know, like, I, I don't know if it's necessarily even one you have to defend against. Like yeah. if like, yes, all dubstep sounds the same. That's what makes it all dubstep. <laughs> but the fact remains that there are people who really enjoy dubstep, whether well, it sounds yeah, the same or can, not. Can I, can I say you like, so I'm a huge fan of the composer, Philip Glass. And a lot of people uh-huh. hate Philip Glass. He's sometimes called a minimalist. He doesn't like that term, whatever. But but his music is very repetitive, right? It's the same sort of bars. And even between pieces, you'll hear a lot of the same 
um, phrases being used and borrowed. And some, for some people, that's a huge turnoff. But for me, I really like it both because there's an aspect of comfort to that sameness, but also because when you're actually listening to it, you then get really excited about the parts that are different. You're like, whoa, mm -hmm. he like mm -hmm. the clarinet came in here instead of in this other part or whatever. <laughs> so maybe it's just a little bit of like, I've done it too much. I'm too deep into it. But um, there is a delightfulness about like, when you have something that is pretty similar, you know, in a lot of ways using the same tricks over and over again, as you said, like, then you can see the moments of contrast and it's, it's pretty nice, but you know, it's not for everybody for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, um, I took a aesthetics course, um, during my undergrad years. And, um, I think that one of the very first essays he had us read, um, and I can't remember the author of this. Um, but what he said was, um, that the best way to understand any given work is to take it in the context of its genre or its style or whatever, and ask like, okay, what is, what is standard? What, what, what are the, what are the conventions of this work? Like mm -hmm. what's variable between pieces of this work mm -hmm. and what would be like non-standard if it were varied. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought that was, I don't know. At the time, I thought it was kind of a profound insight. Like the uh, the author of the piece used a uh, an analogy involving um, Picasso's painting Guernica, right? Which is a well known mm. painting. It's a very yeah. very chaotic looking painting depicting, you know, I, the destruction of the Spanish Civil War, I believe, um, in Guernica. Yep. Yeah. Um, and he he said, "Well, imagine an alien society that has an entire genre of art." called Guernica, like just this, <laughs> this genre where they say that's a Guernica. And what's common between all, what's common between all these works of art is like the same, it's the same images as Picasso's Guernica, but it's always like in a different shape or right. So it's not necessarily just a flat canvas. It's like, it could be a sculpture of a dog or like a blobby thing or like angles, like jutting out everywhere, you know, uh, um, yeah. if you're an alien from that society, you come to earth and see Picasso's painting Guernica and you think, well, that's a rather plain sedate painting <laughs> just because you're used to this. You're used to a different genre, right? Whereas yes. Guernica is in the genre of like Cubist painting or whatever. And someone familiar with Cubist painting looks at it and they go, wow, that's chaotic and violent. But if you're an alien who's only familiar with the genre of Guernica, you look at Picasso's Guernica and you're like, oh, that's boring. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, we need to get back to Wes Anderson. So why don't you tell me about your relationship to Wes Anderson? Why did you hate the guy originally? Or if not hate, at least dislike? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, um, I was, I kind of encountered Wes Anderson at maybe the worst possible time in terms of both, both in terms of- Is there of ever who, a right time to encounter Wes Anderson? No, go ahead, oh, I'm sorry. No, you're good. Um, so, so both in terms of like who I was at the time and also in terms of who he was, I think at that point in his career. So um, the very first Wes Anderson film I ever saw was The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Um, okay. And um, I hated it. I cannot describe to you how much I hated that film. <laughs> watching it i watched it at the very beginning my first semester of college i think and i really didn't like it and and actually i'm you know not to spoil anything here but i still don't like that film. i still think it's his worst film I, I do not like that film and there's some people who will go to bat for that film no matter what <laughs> i know um matt matt uh zoller sites who's you know a kind of big important film critic who's written literally written the book on wes anderson thinks that's his best film great 
God bless you, Matt. I, not a good film. I do not like that film at all. <laughs> and then the second film that I saw from him was Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I think is not a bad film, but mm-hmm. I grew up reading Roald Dahl's Fantastic Mr. Fox. And this is one of those things. I know you're supposed to let go of the book <laughs> when you watch the movie, but it, f- it felt like, you know, it, it felt like artistic violence to take Roald Dahl's vision, which is so different than Wes Anderson's vision, mm-hmm. right? And then kind of force it into that box. And so mm-hmm. I've grown to appreciate it maybe a little bit more on subsequent rewatches, but it's still, you know, it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> this this isn't the point, but I, I do think Roald Dahl is kind of one of those authors who is famously hard to adapt to film. Absolutely. Right? Like Absolutely. there are very few rule doll adaptations that are like legitimately great movies. Um, yeah. I, I think part of the problem is like with a doll, you know, it's a multivalence to his, to what he's doing. And so you get somebody like um, Tim Burton doing uh, Charlie or Charlie and the chocolate factory. And he's like doing, going to do his Tim Burton thing. So he's going to be really like, Ooh, I'm dark and moody and that's fine. I like some, <laughs> I like some Tim Burton films, but like, and that that's in Roald doll. And then you have Wes Anderson, who's like, I'm going to do Fantastic Mr. Fox and I'm going to lean into the whimsy and the kind of the mm-hmm. weird humor of it. And that's fine, too. But you need both you need of both. those things. Yeah. You need both. Of those. I have not seen the, the Spielberg BFG, which is my favorite role doll. I have not heard great things about it. So mm-hmm. even, you know, but but maybe it is good. I, I don't know. But like if even Spielberg, who's a pretty flexible director, and mm-hmm. you know, even though, you know, you're watching a Spielberg film, he he goes through a different a bunch of different genres and things, I, you know. Even he, I think, is probably going to get stumped by the variety of tone and just the weirdness that's mm-hmm. going on in Roald Dahl. So I, I definitely agree with you. It's like, what do you do with a with a with a writer like Roald Dahl? So. I thought Danny DeVito did a pretty good job with Matilda. That's, um, yeah, yeah, that's that a might good be point. The, that might be the best the best example of a cinematic Roald Dahl adaptation. He's uh, he's got humor, but he's also got a meanness to him, which I, yeah. Roald Dahl absolutely does. He's one of the meanest children's actors, right? <laughs> so yeah, I think you're right. I think that's maybe the closest thing we've had to a good Roald Dahl film. Um, we are off track though. So yeah, we were <laughs> <bring it back. laughs> we, we were on Fantastic. So you hated Steve Zissou, which maybe we can get back to why you hated yeah. Fantastic Mr. Fox because you were so attached to the book. Yeah. Um, What's next? What did you see next? Well, I had sort of seen somewhere in there, I had seen Royal Tenenbaums. So it was floating around in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. but, but but we'll come back. You know, that's kind of like a film that's going to be important in my story here. So I had seen it and it just hadn't really kind of like you. It just sort of bounced off me. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, this, this is fine. You know, yeah, it's whatever. It's, it's, <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. Um, so, so so those were the three main ones that I had seen um, like during my period. And then I just sort of dropped it. I was like, why would I bother with this anymore? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, you know, um, in a kind of fallow period for him anyway, like there's a pretty big gap between Fantastic Mr. Fox and then Moonrise Kingdom, which is the film that comes after that. And so there was just kind of a fallow period for, for, for me. And, and I just had no desire to revisit it. And, and, you know, to be honest, part of that was just me as well in mm-hmm. that I have a bit of a, I'm not super, I wouldn't say I'm super contrarian in a lot of ways, but, <laughs> but I do have a bit of a streak of like, well, you know, people like this and I can see through this. Like I can see the emperor's got no clothes on and, and, and part of it I for can me, identify like, with that. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> yes. I have had to work hard to silence that voice because I, I, eventually learned what an asshole that voice is. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. And it can be useful at points, but you gotta, you gotta temper it. But for, for me, like part of what had happened was, 
um, in high school before I had ever seen a Wes Anderson film. I knew some people who were really into Wes Anderson, some of whom I, I appreciated their taste and I generally thought they were trustworthy people, but some of whom I were like, I was like, you all are not like, I do not like your taste in things. And so I still <laughs> carried some of that over. I've, by the way, still never seen Donnie Darko specifically because there was a girl in my homeroom class in high school who was obsessed with Donnie Darko. And she was just aesthetically <laughs> one of my least favorite people that I've ever known in my life. Not morally. I'm sure she was wonderful, but like aesthetically her just whole vibe was terrible. And I was like, I'm never watching this film because of you. <laughs> I have hold, I've held true to that uh, to this day. Maybe I'll, I'll get around to it someday, but keep the faith, uh, be strong. I still haven't <laughs> seen Donnie Darko either. Okay. I, I no, I, I agree that that has been my experience is that the people who really like Donnie Darko are just really obnoxious, terrible people in general, <laughs> um, which has been enough to keep me away from the movie. But uh, yeah. maybe we'll get around to it eventually. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so that's where I was for, for a kind of a long time. You know, that was I, as I mentioned, you know, it was early college when I'd seen Life Aquatic. And then it was a couple of years and I saw Fantastic Mr. Fox when it came out, which I believe is maybe 2008 or 2009, mm -hmm. something like that. And then I just kind of let it ride for a little while. Um, and then, and I'm going to get the timing wrong here. So I apologize. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what year it was. I think it was 2012 or 2013. I had a sort of epiphanic moment with Wes Anderson. Um, and Here's what happened. So my wife, it must have been, yeah, it must have been post 2011, at least because my son had been born. My first son had been born and um, my wife and my son and possibly my, my daughter, I don't know if she'd been born at this point, um, were out of town somewhere. They just gone away for the weekend. So I was by myself and my wife is not a huge movie watcher. Um, and so I kind of get my movie time, you know, if I'm hanging out with somebody who else who's really in the film or just, you know, if I'm on my own, which is pretty rare. And yeah. so I had this chunk of time. I had a weekend and I was like, okay, like here are these films. I guess it was probably at the public library. I was like, okay, I see these two Wes Anderson films. One of them I've never seen. It's Rushmore. It's the one that people tell me, oh, you got to watch Rushmore, right? <laughs> the other one is Royal Tenenbaums. And so I was like, okay, I've seen Royal Tenenbaums, but maybe I'll give it another chance. So my wife's out of town for the weekend. I'm going to watch some films. So you said, go West, young man. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Need absolutely that. absolutely <laughs> so so i get these two films i'm sitting you know at, at my house um and i just decide you know what i'm not even going to bother spreading this out i'm just going to watch these back to back mm -hmm. so you know i've got a chunk you know start i can start at six o'clock in the evening or whatever because i don't have my kid around um so i sit down i watch them in in production order so rushmore is his second films 1999 and then royal tenenbaums is what 2000 2001 right after that mm -hmm. so i sit down and i watch rushmore and I'm like, okay, I actually, I kind of get this. I, I like this. It's very funny, but it's also like surprisingly self-critical in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. It's self-aware mm -hmm. about what it's doing. Not what I remembered Wes Anderson kind of being about. Um, and then I watched Royal Tenenbaums and it was like, I don't know what happened. I don't know if I was just prepped for it from Rushmore, but it was <laughs> like, I don't know. It was a bit like getting punched in the heart or something. Like I understood all of a sudden that I felt like Wes Anderson is actually a more emotionally attuned filmmaker than I had given him credit for. Hmm. My, okay. My that's image, an interesting. No, yeah, go, no, no, you uh, go, go for it. Go I was going to say that's an interesting point because I think a lot of people, including me tend to read him as a very emotionally distant director. Um, like I, I feel like there's a clear, misanthropy to his films like he seems to 
not care very much about his characters as people. They feel like just kind of pawns on a chessboard for him. Like they are, I don't know. Um, I, 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 I didn't want to, I immediately regretted interrupting you because it felt like you were going somewhere oh, with that. No, no, um, no. I, I look, I I'm 100% on board with that. Like that is my, that was what my view of Wes Anderson was from having watched, especially watching life aquatic and then um, fantastic Mr. Fox. And part of the reason I think those are still some of his weakest films along with the Darjeeling limited, which is the film that comes right in between those two films mm -hmm. um, is because they feel more emotionally distant to me. It feels mm -hmm. like he's working strictly in um, a kind of a, a distanced mode. Right? Mm -hmm. And I have some theories about that. We can get into that and maybe in a little bit, um, sure. but, but watching the, the combo of Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums unlocked something for me in his films. And, and I think, I think part of that was just kind of watching the back to back and kind of realizing getting on his wavelength a little bit more than I had been in the past. But I do also think, and maybe people would argue with me about this. I do think there's this weird kind of swing in his career in the middle of the 2000s where he's doing Life Aquatic, Darjeeling, Fantastic Mr. Fox, where he loses a little bit of that emotion. And then Moonrise Kingdom, his next film in 2012, captures that back to an extent. And, um, and then the film after that, Grand Budapest Hotel, which I want to talk about a little bit later, uh, I think absolutely has that, although it may be in some strange ways. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll get to that. But Okay. But watching it, these two films back to back just really did to me feel like, OK, now I have like a blueprint for what he's trying to do in his filmography, which is, mm -hmm. yes, he has this very fussy style. Right. It's very mm -hmm. um, aesthetically precise and, and maybe a little bit like just too prickly or something. But at the same time, he actually is interested in the emotional lives of his characters, maybe just not in the same way that other directors are. Hello, thank you so much for listening to Changed My Mind. I will get right back to that conversation you were just listening to. Uh, but before we do that, I wanna talk real quick about the Patreon. We are a listener supported show. The donations are what keep the lights on. They help me pay my editor and my executive producer. And they are what keep this sort of thoughtful conversation online for listeners to hear. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash change my mind, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash change my mind, you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Once you start supporting at $3 or more, benefits start kicking in. You'll get early access to episodes. And if you support at $5 or more, you will become a producer for the show, uh, which basically means that I'm gonna shout you out at the end of every episode. And also you can come to our strategy meetings on Zoom every month if you want. You um, don't have to talk if you don't want to, you can just be a fly on the wall and see how the magic happens uh, or see how the sausage is made as the case may be. Um, so if you like this show and you like what I'm doing, please consider going online to patreon.com slash change my mind and becoming a supporter. Thanks again to all our listeners and supporters. I really appreciate you. And I will flip you right back over to that conversation you were just listening to. Pre preparing for this conversation, I was kind of cramming Wes Anderson <laughs> films because there, there are quite a few I hadn't seen. Um, so yeah, you, you sent me a list of like, I think it was eight or nine maybe that <laughs> sorry it's like practically his whole filmography so it was not very may, helpful, maybe it was more like five or six i don't know um you sent me a list of a few that um 
you, you thought were pivotal to your feelings about him. And I, I, I looked at the list and I said, okay, I'm going to start with the first one I haven't seen and watch as many as I can stand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, I basically watched everything on the list that I hadn't seen. And then just was like, that's enough. I'm not going to rewatch the other ones that I, that I had. Um, but the one I ended up starting with, uh, just because it was first on the list of, out of what I hadn't seen was Rushmore. Um, and I was actually surprised at how much I enjoyed Rushmore. Um, yeah. Possibly, possibly because it had, you know, it had been a long time since I'd last watched Wes Anderson and, you know, maybe he was better than I gave him credit for or whatever, but um, I, uh, so Rushmore, I really did enjoy. Um, I didn't necessarily enjoy anything after it, but let's, um, I'm, I'm not, pl- I'm not pressing onto that quite yet. Um, okay. The way I've been watching movies lately, which I'm sure will set the teeth on edge for any like movie loving listeners we have, but I've just been watching them in chunks while I lifted weights. You know, <laughs> I'm trying really hard to get in shape these days. Um, <laughs> well, so you know, I'll put a movie on and I'll tell myself, you know, I'm going to lift weights and watch this movie for at least half an hour, you know? And if I'm like really into the movie or the workouts feeling really good, I'll keep going sometimes. Um, but if I'm hating both, I'll turn it off, you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, Rushmore, I actually did end up finishing in a couple of shots, I think, because, you know, the first time I would, I would have kept going, but I got interrupted. The second time I was just like, yeah, I might as well finish this thing. I'll plow through it. It's I'm enjoying it. Um, and I think what works about Rushmore for me is that the main character really is compelling. Like yes, he really absolutely. is a fascinating character. Um, and Rushmore, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's, it's basically, it's about this kid who is, he's kind of a weird mix of, of, of like D student and overachiever at a, Yes. Uh, a prep school. Um, like he, he is the president of like every club on campus, but also failing all his classes or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, yep. really passionate about putting on like really elaborate, lavish plays. Um, and he falls in love with a teacher, gets himself kicked out of the school, uh, basically makes a mess of his life, but then keeps being the same obnoxious kid, essentially. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much the story of the movie. Um, and I, I don't know, something about that character really was compelling to me. And I don't know if maybe it's because, um, like you said, it's Wes Anderson being self-critical. Like you do get a sense that, uh, Anderson really identifies with this character in some way. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know very much at all about Wes Anderson's biography. So I don't know if he has a whole I believe, lot in common with him. I believe the film was filmed at his prep school that he had attended in Houston. Oh, was it really? Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Or at the very least one he knew well. So yeah, it is a part. So of it is kind of a quasi autobiographical in movie. some ways, it's, you know, yeah, at least in terms yeah. of its, its points of reference. So I don't know what his, what his grades were like, but you know, yeah. that, that <laughs> well, world lo- certainly. <laughs> and live theater does seem to be a recurring motif in his yeah, films. Did he get absolutely. a start on stage? Maybe I'm not, or, I, I'm not okay, sure. Okay. I, I'm not, I'm not certain about that. I mean, cause there's an argument to be made that like the camera angles, the right angles he uses feel yeah. very theatrical as well. Right. I don't know. Um, Absolutely. No. So I think that's why the movie worked for me was cause it really felt like Wes Anderson being like, yeah, I know I'm kind of an obnoxious snotty prick <laughs> and I've learned to accept that about myself or something like something along those lines. 
Um, it's also a movie about ex- learning to accept your limitations. And yeah. one of the things that maybe he's lost since the energy of Rushmore, which is, I, I actually don't think Rushmore's his best film. I'm going to make an argument for another one later, okay. but it's one, certainly, I think, in the top two or three. And, and part of what animates the film is this sense of the class issues that are at play, right? Because he's mm-hmm. a kid, he's a scholarship kid, and he's desperate yeah. to hide the fact that his dad's a barber, right? And he he's, tells everyone his dad's a neurosurgeon or right, so, yeah. something exactly, like that. Exactly, because he's, 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 you know, a barber surgeon. Um, but he... He has that, you know, it's almost like Great Expectations where like mm-hmm. you know, this wonderful scene in Great Expectations where Pip realizes he's ashamed of his foster father, Joe, and he's like, because he's not educated, right? It's that, that same animating energy there that's in the film. And so I think that that really gives it attention mm-hmm. that's maybe missing from some of the other films. And, you know, he's kind of obviously these days he's sort of viewed as a filmmaker of the upper crust, right? Which he's not yeah, done so yeah. many favors. Because a lot of his characters are like that. But in Rushmore, we have this character who's trying to fit into that world and it's not working. And yeah. so that's part of what I think makes the film work. And I, I think that's why Rushmore worked for me in a way that like basically none of his other movies have is that there's this real this real tension at the at the heart of it that so many of his other movies to me are just like, like you said, upper crust people having very petty problems and, mm-hmm. you know, hating themselves and each other for no particularly good reason. You know, it's just, can I give you my, can I give you my, just drop my biggest hot take here for you? Yeah. Drop um, the hot take. Okay. This is going to maybe enrage. Drop people. it like it's hot. Drop, drop it like it's hot. I firmly believe that Wes Anderson, the Wes Anderson, Bill Murray marriage was disastrous for both of them. And hmm. that is a hot take. This is a hot take. So that is so the hottest take. The best, this is going to be, but the best, whatever people say, the best actually like Bill Murray period of time is the early to mid 90s, which is supposed to be his dry spell, right? Because Rushmore was mm-hmm. the film that brought him back. And it's like, oh, it's the Bill Murray Renaissance. But mm-hmm. what have you got in? The 90s, you've got Groundhog Day, incredible film. You got mm-hmm. What About Bob, like a nice a solid film. Yeah, a great, great film. It's been a while <laughs> since I've rewatched it, but yeah, great film. Yeah. You've got The Man Who Knew Too Little, which is an underrated. That is a very underrated. Yeah. Great film. And that's him playing in his wheelhouse. I will even go to bat. This is maybe a little bit embarrassing. I think this might be actually slightly after Rushmore, but um, I will go to bat for Osmosis Jones, which is <laughs> not a film that, although he's not great and I don't think he's the best part of it, but that that's a film that is at least like a pretty good film. It is an interesting, like it's a it, weird has film, this repu- it has this reputation of being like a garbage fire of what were yeah. they thinking, which is maybe true to an extent, <laughs> but you have to give it credit for doing something different and actually yes. doing it pretty well, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so, 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 but what happened with the Bill Murray Renaissance was that people misidentified what makes Bill Murray great, which is that mm-hmm. he is, I mean, he has a blankness about him, but there's like a, an edge to him, like an sort of, you know, like an, mm-hmm. a, a bit of an assholeish edge and um, it, it animates well, I mean, his comedy. That's definitely right? what he was doing in his like SNL heyday in the late 80s, right? right? Absolutely. Like his, his, his Ghostbusters character is, it's a, he's a pretty prickly character. He's yes. not like a, not Absolutely. like a cuddly teddy bear sort like he ended up playing later in his career. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what happens, I think, with Wes Anderson is that like he's actually in Rushmore, a perfect 
character because he's there as a foil and he's this mm. bl- he has this blankness about him that plays really well against Jason Schwartzman's sort of youthful eagerness in the mm-hmm. film right and so it's mm-hmm. a nice back and forth between the two of them and it actually really works but then and in Royal Tenenbaums he's like part of this ensemble cast so and he's he's a pretty great character because he's fairly minor right and um but then with Life Aquatic I think what's disastrous is trying to take that blank character and make him the center the of the film. center. Yeah. And, and it just doesn't, and I know he's trying to like maybe humanize that prickliness around the edges, but there's too much blankness in Bill Murray post that. And I, so I think, you know, for, for Anderson, I, I do think it kind of put him down this bad path in his career. And I have an alternate take, which is his first film bottle rocket, you know, pretty typical of an, a nineties indie film. Okay. So in, in, his, in, in bottle rocket, his first film, you know, very typical of indie films of the mid nineties, you hire one famous person who's kind of washed up to be in your film. And so in bottle rocket, you have Luke and Owen Wilson, but they're not stars yet. And so your kind mm-hmm. of washed up film star is James Kahn. And he's incredible mm-hmm. in bottle rocket. He's this mm-hmm. like, like kind of like wannabe mafioso of the Texas suburbs. Right. And he's incredibly he's crackling with energy. There's an alternate timeline where Wes Anderson just keeps making films that are more like Bottle Rocket and have that sort of crackling energy in them. It's a fascinating like, kind of alternate history for you. But instead, mm-hmm. in, in the next film, he brought in Bill Murray. People really responded to it for whatever reason. And then that sort of set him on this path of like Bill Murraydom. And I don't think it was, I mean, Bill Murray's fine in his dramatic roles. He's good. But mm-hmm. like, I actually don't think it's done Bill Murray any favors either. I guess now he's just become a meme, right? Um, he just like shows up places randomly and he, God bless Bill Murray. He's great. But you know, like, I, I don't think that those films are as lasting a cultural legacy as something like Groundhog Day is, or what mm. about, even what about Bob? Like that's what Bill Murray should be doing. So anyway, yeah. that's my hot take about this. Yeah. That's what I, I think. That's my take on the Wes Anderson, Bill, Bill Murray marriage is that ultimately it was not super successful. And I think you see Anderson kind of figuring that out because he does the one film, Life Aquatic, and then Murray kind of goes back to being that marginal figure in the films. He's no longer really the focal presence after that. And mm-hmm. So maybe he figured that out, but but it kind of stuck with him, too, through something like Darjeeling Limited, which has a lot of that blankness to it as well. Mm-hmm. So that to me is like, I think Rushmore is sort of the perfect Murray role because he's there as sort of the antimatter to Jason Schwartzman's character. Mm-hmm. So I guess I I think I think what bothers me about these movies beyond beyond just the emotional distance is just how mannered they are. Like how how so much of it is like so much of the choices made are just like it, clearly just someone saying, well this would be this would be funny if we did this or this, this would be weird. You know, I, I just, I think of um, um, Rushmore again, which, which is the one I really, really liked, but there's a scene, to, you know, maybe two thirds of the way through the movie where he shows up at this teacher's window and he's actually like brought a ladder and climbed up to her roof and he's tapping on her window and she opens the window and he tells her, I think she, he tells her he was, he was in a car car accident or something and he's hurt. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, any normal person would be like, okay, so why are you at my window with a ladder if you were in a car accident? But that doesn't even enter her mind. She just, she 
believes his story and starts trying to nurse him back to health. And it's just like, why does the ladder, why is the ladder there? Like, obviously you thought it looked, looked cool or it would be funny or something, but like, it's, it's just that, that's sort of like the sort of thing that, you know, if a lesser director did it, everybody would be jumping on him for it. <laughs> but yeah, because, be, because he's this art house darling, it's like, no, he's, you know, it's a choice that makes perfect sense. He's a genius. <laughs> I think that you might be getting to the heart of something here, which is that what I'm going to say about Wes Anderson is I think that he, if I had to describe him with a style, I would call him a very Baroque director. Okay. In that there is a lot of ornamentation. And so, mm-hmm. and, and for some people that's like awful, you know, that's like, mm-hmm. there, there are these details here. Like, why are they here? Well, it, they're here for the sake of aestheticism or because right, yeah. there's a whim here that's driving this. And, and for some people, that's a, that's really is a turn on, you know, I mean, like that's the reason you go from the Baroque period in painting into, you know, the sort of classicism of Jacques-Louis David, where it's like, nothing's in the frame except these guys with swords. Right. <laughs> Whereas in the Baroque period, you have all this like you yeah. know, these flowery things that are going on. And so there's a, there's a sense of excess. Absolutely. And it's like, not everything is driven by the, um, maybe the economy of um, logic or something like that. And, and I, yeah. so I totally understand that. Well, I, and to be that. clear, to be clear, when I say this, there might be a note of jealousy in my voice. <laughs> like as someone, as someone who's written a couple of novels, knowing that when you make a purely aesthetic choice that maybe doesn't quite make plot or character sense, people are going to jump on you and demand that you change it before they publish your book or whatever. Yeah. You know, and it's like, why does he get away with that? And I can't, I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I know. I get that. Like I I'm somebody, you know, I have a, a long suffering novel in progress, never going to finish it probably, but um, <laughs> it's kind of liberating in that way because I can just do whatever I want to do. And I know I don't have to think about, you know, the pressures of publishing it. And so, you know, there is, and I am, you know, I am a maximalist, I think in my style, like I love, you know, people are always like, Oh, are you a, you know, like Hemingway is the ultimate in prose style or something like that. And I'm like, no, I love Charles Dickens. Like I like his out of controlness and and I appreciate the spareness too. Like I like spareness as well, but I think there's a room for that sort of maximalism. And so you're right. There is like, I'm jealous. I mean, I'm jealous of people who get to kind of put in whatever they want to get to put in and into their work and, and can have like, it why, why does he get to do it? Is, is it just because he knows all these famous people in Hollywood? I guess so. Yeah. You get like, <laughs> I mean, when, 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 when Martin Scorsese picks your film bottle rocket, oddly enough, is one of the best films of the 1990s. I think you're kind of set for life and you can do yeah, whatever so, you want to so. do, <laughs> which is funny. Like, it's like, man, okay, there you go. Golden ticket. <laughs> so yeah, no, I get that for sure. For sure. I think maybe that's why, if we can turn for just a second sure. here, um, that, that my favorite of his films is is actually Grand Budapest Hotel. And okay. the reason I love this film, and I don't know if you got around to watching it or if you were just done. I did, yeah. Okay. The, the reason that I love the film so much is that I think it perfectly matches. He finally found content that perfectly matches his form. And, now that's and an me, interesting take. And I, I, I think I might actually agree, but I want to hear what you... Okay, so go ahead. So, yeah. so, so Grand Budapest Hotel, as as I understand it, it's not based on any one story, but it's based on the stories or the world created by an Austrian author named Stefan Zweig, and yeah. he was an author who's writing in the mid, like early mid early twentieth century. That's kind of an important distinction. Basically, the interwar period between World mm-hmm. War One and World War Two, and he's 
writing these stories that capture this strange sense of what's going on in what had been Austria-Hungary is now mm-hmm. just Austria. Um, after the destruction of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of World War One, and then kind of heading into the time where they're sort of sliding into fascism, and then Hitler comes in, of course, and takes over. And and I've actually never read any Stefan Zweig, but I kind of understand the tone and the feel because one of my absolute favorite novels that's ever been written, I think it's top five greatest books of the 20th century, is a book called The Radetzky March by a man mm. named Joseph Roth. And he's in this same world. Joseph Roth, he's a fascinating figure. He's a um, Austrian Jew. He like flirts with converting to Catholicism. He never actually gets around to it. He's a terrible chronic drunk. And he is devastated by what he sees as like this sort of rise, the creeping fascism in Austria. And so he produces, he writes a number of books, but, but the Radetzky March is just a singular stunning book. It takes place basically from about 1850, right up to the start of World War I. And he's tracing this decay and decline of the Austro-Hungarian empire. And he's pitching it in this perfect tone that's midway between nostalgia and a sort of sardonic view of what's going on here. Mm. So it's like a lot of the characters are kind of idiots, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and just <laughs> ne'er-do-wells. And, and like one of the characters is um, the emperor of Austria. And he's just this doddering old man. He can like barely figure out what's going on all the time. And so you have all of this stuff in here that makes it feel like a comedy. And you're like, oh, this is so funny. What a bunch of idiots. Like Austro-Hungarian Empire, what a trash place to be. <laughs> But, but then he also manages to capture how devastating it is to lose the stability of what the Austro-Hungarian Empire had given these people, a sense of mm. unity between peoples, mm-hmm. a place, I mean, it's, it was not perfect, and he recognizes this, but a place for Jews, right, mm. that was mm-hmm. at least more tolerant than what was coming for them. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a, it's just, it's just a, such a beautiful, fascinating book. And that's what Wes Anderson is capturing in Grand Budapest Hotel, you know, via another author, but a similar author, is that sense of, is this farce or is it like, is it nostalgia? What's going on here? There's an uncertainty mm-hmm. about that. And so, yes, like um, this, the, 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 the picture of the hotel, which is this grand, oh, sorry, that's, that's a dumb way to describe <laughs> it. It's called the Grand Budapest Hotel. It's this magnificent hotel right that caters to the aristocrats of the world and you know the 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 manager is just such a um fastidious person those things are all ridiculous right it, and absolutely ridiculous and it, it's recognized as such but there's something in that character that's also kind of heartbreaking like the fact that mm-hmm. that is passing away and being lost mm-hmm. and what's replacing it is not better right there's this mm-hmm. you know it's Sometimes, you know, I remember Jacobin magazine wrote a scathing review of Grand Budapest Hotel, which is like, you know, Jacobin's like the, the, the socialist web, um, yeah. website magazine. And they wrote a scathing review of it as just being a defense of like the aristocracy. But I think what some a, a criticism like that misses is that it's a, such a complicated relationship. And mm-hmm. it's maybe, yes, it's not a progressive film in that sense. It's a it's a conservative film in the sense that it recognizes that. Yes, you. There are problems to be fixed in society, but sometimes the attempt to fix those problems just makes them even worse. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's that delicate balance that's going on, and, and that matches that style, that aestheticism, where it's like a house of cards almost, right? Like mm-hmm. you poke it, and it's gonna fall down. But he manages to kind of keep it tottering. Um, and, and I think that that sort of you know, and 
you know, obviously he, he fa- very famously, there's like three different narratives going on and he, f- he films each of them in a different mm-hmm. um, frame uh, on screen. He, d- he makes different aspect like ratio, different, yeah. different aspect mm-hmm. ratio. Yeah. And, and so there's like those elements of fastidiousness there. And you're like, well, what is he doing? But then if you think about the, the, the complex feelings that he's trying to capture in that, I think mm-hmm. it really makes sense in a lot of ways. And so I think that that's his most successful kind of experiment to date. Hmm. Well, that really makes me want to rewatch the movie. <laughs> now I'm going to have to. Thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, I think you're actually, I think you're actually dead on um, that there was, there was a certain blend of, of tones there that really seemed to nail what he had been going for, for several movies. Um, and I, I, I actually absolutely agree with you there. I guess what was missing for me still though, was just um, like, I don't feel like there was a character that I, or possibly that Wes himself connected with in that movie in the same way that as the main character of Rushmore, you know, like I um, like even, even in his best, even in his best movies, he still seems to be holding these characters at arm's length. And I just, I don't, I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't connect with me. Even, even if I can stand back and say, yeah, I respect that. That was well done. You know? Um, Yeah. And you know, and, and I think that maybe like, (laughs) this is just a temperamental thing. Like you may have to let go of that if you're ever, you know, and and by any means, if you don't enjoy it, but like for for me, that's not a problem. Actually, I'm very, (laughs) this Mm -hmm. is going to sound terrible. This is maybe my, my worst take, but, um, uh, I'm actually very, I'm very anti like sympathy and empathy in art. Um, and so um, it doesn't bother me very much that that happens. And in general, you know, and in just, general, <laughs> screw you, Luke. Um, no, but, but um, like, I actually am very drawn to those sorts of narratives that are uh, very um, off-putting on the surface because of that. So, so one of my favorite, I'm not going to talk too much about books. I know this is a film podcast, but my, <laughs> one of my favorite authors, somebody I worked on in my dissertation is the, the Catholic Scottish novelist, Muriel Spark. And she's sort okay. of infamous for almost feeling like she's like experimenting on her characters or like peering down on them and um, no sympathy, no empathy whatsoever. It's just an extremely dry off-putting presentation there's a there's a um a moment one of my favorite moments in um her book memento mori which is about a group of old people who are getting harassed by a caller who keeps calling them up and saying remember you must die and then hanging up there's a woman there's a there's a woman um near the end of the book who who gets murdered and the presentation of the murder is one of the most chilling things i've ever read because it's completely clinical it's just like mm. this happened, this happened, mm-hmm. this happened, and there's no access to that inner life. And I understand, like that's super off-putting to people, right? Um, but if you get on that wavelength, I kind of love it. Like it's this, I don't know, it's just hard to hold on to, you know, mm. and it's hard to, it's hard, you know, and one of the things I guess I distrust about connections to characters and things, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I have those two. It's not like I'm not a I promise I'm not a sociopath. Um, like <laughs> I do connect to characters on screen and I love emotional. I love sentiment. Actually, I kind of, I'm almost like I swing back and forth between poles of being like completely mm-hmm. unsympathetic and then like super invested. But, but what I appreciate about those, those, those moments of a lack of sympathy is like, it gives you a clear view of what's going on and it lets you as the reader or the viewer process what's going on on the screen in a way that's different than you do if you're feeling connected. So True. I, I understand that that's like a take it or leave it thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right on, right on. All right. Well, anything else about Wes Anderson or should we 
Should we wrap up? Um, just, you know, if you're somebody who's never seen a Wes Anderson film, I would say, I mean, I'm biased here, obviously, but I, I would say start with Rushmore. I think it's a great place mm. to start. Um, it gives you a sense of, especially since it's his second film, it gives you a sense of what are some different possibilities that might be in his career. And then you can kind of trace those. I think the Royal Tenenbaums is a great film too, because it, it sneakily packs in these emotional moments. Um, mm. Maybe, maybe not as running throughout as Rushmore has it, but so, so I would start with those two and then maybe, maybe try something like Moonrise Kingdom um, and, and Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, when you're brave, you can watch Life Aquatic and tell me if you, you like it and want to defend it. Um, but you kind of have to jump around a little bit maybe to, to get, the I think, the full experience. So, All right. Let me ask you this. Um, aside from your, your new beliefs themselves or your new feelings about Wes Anderson or whatever, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? I think for me, it was an important maybe reminder or minder, I suppose. I don't know if I'd really thought about this before <laughs> that like different works of art are going to mean different things to you at different points in your life. And so it, mm. there's maybe such a thing as the wrong time to encounter a book or a film. Um, and, and there's a very right time to encounter those things, you know, like mm. I mean, to take a kind of, actually, this is a book I've never read. I'm going to admit this on air now, but to take a very infamous example, right. Something like the catcher in the rye, is like very infamous for being a book that teenagers glom onto. And like, that's actually, it's like Donnie Darko. It's a, that's a book I've never read kind of for that reason. Um, I was yeah. like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm gonna like, you know, but, but, you know, maybe there's a reason that's the case, you know, maybe that there's not, it's not a necessarily a bad thing that that's a book that teenagers really connect to. And maybe you don't connect as much as an adult. Teenagers or need like books that. too, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> teenagers need books too. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, there's something to that. And there's something, I see this with my, my students when I teach them different books. I was um, I, I'm teaching Shakespeare this semester, which is not in my field at all, but I, I like Shakespeare a lot. And they liked everything we were doing. And then we got to The Tempest at the very end of the semester. We just finished up The Tempest and they did not like it at all. And I realized like it is a, a very much an old person's play. It is. Yeah. And I think you have to be older at least and have some life experience to really treasure what's going on in the play and so mm -hmm. you know i was like okay you know lesson learned i probably won't teach this again mm -hmm. maybe it's something they can come back and encounter in 10 or 15 years when they've had to wrestle with things like forgiving somebody who's really hurt you and mm -hmm. then they'll be able to access it a little bit better than they did something that's kind of breezy and fun like much ado about nothing you know so so i think there's something to that like this idea that you can come back at various points in your life and your taste doesn't have to be cemented and so it's worth giving a shot to directors again even though you think mm -hmm. you don't like them you know to, to, to every once in a while come back and try again mm -hmm. and and try to access what's really going on there so mm -hmm. that, to, that to me is just a reminder like don't feel like you're always going to feel the same way and even if you are strongly resistant to the idea of trying something maybe just try it anyway and see and maybe it's maybe it hasn't changed maybe you still don't mm -hmm. like it but mm -hmm. It's okay. It's two hours of your life you don't get back, but you, you learned a lesson. You know, so that yeah. to me has been the biggest lesson. It's just to to. It's okay to be closed and open minded about things. It's okay to mm -hmm. have an opinion that feels very firm, and then it's okay to reevaluate that opinion too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think of probably probably Joel and Ethan Cohen as one of the big ones for me. Really, on that. like a lot of their movies. A lot of their movies. I 
hated the first time I watched them. And I don't know if it was, if it was just a case of like me not quite keeping up with them or like not connecting emotionally. Like, I mean, Fargo, which is, I think generally considered their masterpiece, right? The first time I sat down to watch it, I was like, what in the world was that? (laughs) Like, why would anybody want to watch that? Let alone like think it's a great movie. Um, Yeah. And then I, you know, I, cause I was, I was writing for a film blog and we were doing a series on the Coens and I somehow got assigned Fargo. I, you know, I rewatched it and I was like, Oh wait, that was brilliant. Like why, why didn't I, why didn't I understand <laughs> yeah. it the first time around? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's, there's definitely, I can definitely think of works um, of literature, cinema, et cetera, that I, I really hated the first time and mm-hmm. then loved the second time, you know, and yeah. I don't know. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything like, I mean, it might be, you know, it could be for a different reason for each one, but um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there is, there is something to be said for, um, you know, give, give works a second chance, give, give people a second chance. Right. Because absolutely. I mean, you know, if you're not connecting with a work of art, it's a problem maybe because you're not connecting with the creator um, of mm-hmm. the work of art, you know, and if, if you're not connecting with a person, maybe you just hit them on the wrong day or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good. Luke. I, I, I've definitely experienced that in my own life. Like somebody will be so off putting the first time you meet them and you're like, I never want to talk to you again. You're awful. And then you, then you like meet them again for whatever reason. And you're forced to spend time with them. And you're like, okay, actually, you know what? I kind of get it now. I get who you are as a person and I can tolerate that. And, or maybe even grow to kind of like you, you know, I think yeah. that's good. I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, I have uh, three questions. I ask all my guests at the end of the show to poke at ontology, epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? <laughs> um, I still, I still have no clue about any of these, but uh, good. I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm hoping one guest one day is going to give me like the definitive answers. And then I can be like, pack it in. We're going home. Um, I know everything there is to know about being human. Good. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to get you there. I promise you that. Oh so man. I'm going to try to leave you maybe not like less smart than I, you started with, but I'm not, <laughs> not going to progress you very far. <laughs> I guess, I guess we'll see. Um, Asher, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? I'm not sure. I don't know if I believe that identity is a, as such, or at least as it's maybe framed today exists. Um, I believe in the soul. And so I believe there is a coherence to people. There's something that holds us together. This is not like a, I don't know if you know John Locke's um, brave soldier paradox, where it's like you got a soldier at 15, a soldier at 40, a soldier at you know 60. 60 year old remembers things from the 40, but not the 15 and all this, right. Are they the same person? Right. I think Mm. there is a an underlying coherence there, but it's not necessarily based on anything that we can do. Um, Mm. And so I think a lot of times, you know, people think about identity. They're really thinking about external characteristics um, that they're adopting and that's fine. And those are important. I'm not trying to downplay that, but, but I think that, that that's not necessarily what's underneath and, and it's maybe just a little bit mysterious. What is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? Oh, I'm not a blank slateist. I can tell you that. Um, I, you know, I have, yet, I have yet to meet one, right? Really? I have okay, yet good. to have one on the show. Yeah. I, okay. no, one has, one. no one has chosen that option yet. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think 
um, I think my answer would be yes. <laughs> like we are both, we are both like similar and different. And there's a, there's a wide expression of what fits into human nature, but I think there are characteristics that bind us together. And, and here, you know, I'll just say like, I'm a, I'm a Catholic. And so that influences the way I think about the world. But um, to me, you know, there's something about the wonderful potential of people married to the, the sort of disastrous outcomes that actually happen. That's part of a human nature. And that in the midst of that, we don't lose hope that we don't lose that sense of striving, whether or not you want to call it a, a thirst for the supernatural. I can maybe be debated on that, but something beyond ourselves, something beyond that combination of potential and weakness that feels so frustrating so often. Um, I think that that, that, that binds us together, you know, and you can maybe look and talk about whatever, like people have, you know, various concerns in their different cultures, but, but I think there's something, I do think there's something underneath that binds us together. Um, so maybe that makes me romantic or something. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like that. I like that idea of, um, tell, tell me if I'm misquoting you, but I, I do like that idea that, that there's a certain weakness that binds humans together. Um, yeah. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's uh, what cinema like the Grand Budapest Hotel is about, ultimately. Yeah. That yeah. There is a, a certain uh, a certain fate that human weakness inevitably leads to. Is that? Yeah. I'm having trouble connecting the dots there. But it's I'm like, trying. no, no, no. I, I like that because it is. <laughs> and, you know, this is maybe like this is like my underlying beliefs about the world coming out in my aesthetic taste. But I like these, I like these stories of sort of um, situations that seem hopeless or seem mm -hmm. to be about decay, mm -hmm. but, but contain within them these seeds of hope as well. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. a complexity there. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Finally, what is truth? How do you know truth? And how do you know when you found truth? What do you think? <laughs> Come on, Luke. I thought you were going to have some difficult questions for me on this podcast. No, I, what I don't, is truth? I don't. I don't. Oh, I, don't no. I don't go deep. I just. I, <laughs> I do softball questions. Um, oh man. I mean, that's. It's a great question. And again, you know, for me, I can only kind of lean on what I've, to an extent, received. I think truth is, um, in large part, something that we receive and then in turn um, pass down. It's, it's a way of understanding the world, a way of being in the world, maybe more than anything else. I don't mm -hmm. think of truth primarily as here's the set of like facts that I can like grind up my teeth and then digest <laughs> and then like poop out something at the end, um, which is why I'm not a libertarian. Sorry. Hey um, but like, <laughs> Sorry, libertarians. I know some <laughs> lovely libertarians, but I'm not one of them. Um, but there's, you know, there's something like it, it's a way of experiencing the world. And, you know, my some of my work, you know, I'm a literary scholar, but I, but I work on on the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And um, I think there's something to I don't think he's got it all right, but there's something to his notion. That truth has to be both subjective and objective. Right. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. it's not like truth is not subjective fully but it is outside of ourselves and the way that we experience it is necessarily tied up in us as individuals mm -hmm. and so there's there's kind of that that tension there and you know obviously i would say again you know i'm a catholic and i believe that the catholic church teaches the truth but i also understand that like 
there's truth to be found outside of that. And there's human experiences to be had in the way that we, anywhere there's a making sense of the world, I think there's, there's some truth there. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. All right. Well, um, before we go, do you want to tell people where they can find you, find your work, find your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, you can find me on Twitter. Um, my, my personal handle is concept of dread D R E D D. It's kind of a stupid, uh, pun on there's a, there's a work by Kierkegaard called the concept of anxiety or the concept of dread. And so I turned that into, of course, judge dread. Um, uh, so concept <laughs> of dread D R E D D on Twitter. Um, you'll most meet mostly there. Find me tweeting out just like terrible puns that I can't tell my kids because they've set up a joke chart for me and I have to buy them ice cream after I tell too many puns. <laughs> so that's just me, me, t- me tweeting those out into the, into the nothingness, into the void. Um, but, but more seriously, you know, if you, if you want to follow along, I I'd love, you know, to have more listeners for my, my podcast is called the readers Karamazov. You can find us on Twitter at the readers K and we're also um, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're on um, Podbean as our host. So the readers, karamazov.podbean.com. We're just wrapping up our second season, which has been themed around um, George Eliot's Middlemarch. Um, we've got four episodes on that and then a bunch of episodes on other smaller books that we are tying back to Middlemarch. We're just about to wrap up that um, that second season. But we're doing a lot of fun things. It's, it's a podcast. You know, It's about literature. We tackle to some degree, big, important books, although also books that maybe you've never heard of. Like uh, last year, we did Samuel Delaney's The Trouble on Triton, which is a wonderful sci-fi novel, um, other books like that. And and so what we're doing, my, my two co-hosts and I are, are thinking about the ways in which literature and literary form really is about is uh, thinking through big ideas about, about human nature, about things like that. So we talk about um, kind of the combination of ideas and form together. And I, I, I know I'm biased, obviously, but I think we're doing pretty good work. Um, so you can find us at, at those places. If you're a real, like you want to deep dive on me and stalk me, you can go to my website, which is just asherdelzergavadis.com. Um, I have some writing there. I, again, I'm not doing tons of writing these days. I'm doing a lot of grading and then some podcasting. Uh, but you can find me at those places. Right on. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Asher. Thank you so much, Luke. This is just such a fun conversation to have. And I have no idea if I did anything to change your mind, but it, thinking <laughs> through these things really helped clarify for me why I did change my mind on things. So, Well, like I said, you did make me feel like I have to give Grand Budapest another shot. <laughs> That's all I ask. Uh, okay. Well, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. You can email the show at changedmymindpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at changedmindpod. And you can find me at Luke T. Harrington. And I will see you next time. When my wife and I were first married, um, I remember a a conversation I had, um, and she was there as well. Uh, and I don't remember the context and I don't remember who it was with, uh, someone I have interacted with very little since, um, or else I would remember better, but he was, um, going on and on about how, how much he loved the Harry Potter series. And, uh, you know, he had been getting into it and was obsessed with it and, uh, we were all in our 20s, and this was a time when it was still kind of okay for people in their 20s to like Harry Potter. Um, and he eventually turned to me and said, are you into Harry Potter at all? And I just, 
for some reason, I felt the need to just devastate him, you know, <laughs> just not not to just say like, yeah, it's not really my thing, but to say, no, nah, I think it's garbage. You know, it's a, it's just a generic, uh, incorruptible hero versus impossibly evil villain story. I've seen it a thousand times. I don't need to see it again. Um, and I, I don't know. I felt really good about myself for having said that at the time, um, which, okay, I was a guy in my 20s. Don't judge me, right? But um, I really appreciated uh, that my wife was able to be brutally honest with me later that day and was like, you know, it's fine that you don't like things, but you don't have to be an asshole about it. You know, <laughs> like let people like what they like, um, which I think there are limits to let people like what they like. Um, for instance, if someone likes going on murder sprees, we should probably uh, frown on that. Um, but there is something to be said for that. Um, for some reason, when I was in my teens and my 20s, I was just really obsessed with the idea of a universal aesthetic. You know, like some things are capital G good and some things are capital B bad. And of course, I'm talking about works of art, um, films, books, whatever, uh, when, I, when I say that. But that's just not really the case. Um, and what's kind of broaden my thinking a little bit about this is just having sort of an Aristotelian understanding of art, um, which is that art has really one final cause. Um, and in Aristotelian terms, the final cause is the purpose for which something was made, right? And the purpose of art, the final cause of art is to instill a certain emotion in the viewer, or the reader, or the listener, or whatever. And if someone likes something, it's probably because that work of art was successful at instilling that emotion in them. Um, and maybe it won't work for you, and that's okay, right? Like, no work of art is perfect. Some are better than others. Some will have the intended effect upon a decent-sized chunk of people, and some just won't. And those are the worst works of art, and that's fine. But there's no universal aesthetic, right? There's no work of art that has instilled the correct emotion on everyone who's experienced it. And that's fine. You know, sometimes you're just going to be in the minority. You're just not going to get it. You're at the wrong point in your life or whatever. Um, and that's fine. Like, if it's not for you, it's not for you but maybe give it another chance somewhere down the road, right? When you're in a different place and maybe that time around, it'll work on you. Anyway, that's it for this week. Really appreciate you guys listening. If you appreciate what I'm doing, please take a second to go on Apple Podcasts and write me a review. Give me some five-star love and I will make you internet famous. I will read your review live on the air and your mom will be so proud. Um, if you want to support me financially, uh, we do have a Patreon. Um, the Patreon is located at patreon.com slash change my mind. For $1 a month, you can become a proud supporter. For $3 a month, you will get early access to episodes. And for $5 a month, you will be a producer on the show. I will shout you out by name at the end of every episode. And you can come to our monthly meetings to talk about 
strategy for the show. It's great. Go to patreon.com slash change my mind. Um, if you like me and just want to support me and get more of what I'm doing, uh, please sign up for my Substack. My Substack uh, is at luketherrington.substack.com. A Substack, if you don't know, is like an email newsletter. Everyone who signs up for my Substack instantly gets uh, ebooks of both of my published books, uh, my horror novel, Ophelia Alive, and my humor book, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. Um, and you will get my thoughts in your email inbox every month. It's a free newsletter. So once again, that's luketherrington.substack.com. Our producer here on Change My Mind is Tamar Harrington. To be a producer, go to the Patreon. Our executive producer is Blake Collier. Our editor is Jonathan Clausen. And we are presented by the Raven Creek Social Club. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And please don't be afraid to change your mind. <laughs>